Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole Nussbaumer-Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. Today, we're going to tackle a seemingly simple question that comes up frequently. First though, let me take you quickly through a recent related situation. I like to cook. I make meals regularly. One bit of trivia my husband sometimes shares about me is that my foray into blogging actually didn't come in the form of storytelling with data, but rather cooking. Now, as kids have entered the mix, I've looked for ways for them to participate in the kitchen. I love how the measuring helps them think mathematically and the pride they show after having made something that they and others can enjoy. Just this past week, my oldest and I made two things together, muffins and meatballs. Now, muffins and meatballs don't have many ingredients in common, but they do have one important one, eggs, which meant my six-year-old had a couple opportunities to practice cracking them, something he's not done very many times. I have cracked a lot of eggs. With the cooking and baking I've done, I've doubtlessly cracked thousands of them over my lifetime. Sure, every once in a while a shell makes its way into the batter, but for the most part, I'd consider myself an expert in this area. My son, on the other hand, could probably count the eggs he has cracked prior to this past week on one hand. He's a thoughtful kid, so he didn't just smash it. He cupped the first egg in his two little hands and turned to me with a simple question. How do I crack this? For me, this is not so dissimilar from the question, how do I graph this? I've created many thousands of graphs in my life. I'm pretty sure more graphs have been made than eggs have been cracked. Today, I want to discuss this seemingly simple question. To those who've created many data visualizations, this may seem rudimentary, but choosing an effective graph is one of the most important steps in communicating effectively with data. So today, I'd like to lend some thoughts and related resources in response to the question, what graph should I use? Join the nearly 2,000 people from around the world who have already signed up for Storytelling with Data's first ever live stream this Thursday, May 30th, 2019. Interact in real time with Cole as she covers the topic of learning through critique. This event will be free to those who register in advance at storytellingwithdata.com slash livestream. That's storytellingwithdata.com slash livestream. And while space is not limited to this event, space is limited to Storytelling with Data's three public workshops in Dublin on June 18th, Copenhagen on June 25th, and Zurich on June 27th. These workshops are expected to sell out, so be sure not to miss Cole's final European stops for 2019. Visit storytellingwithdata.co.uk for more information. So we're going to start with some common ones used in a business setting. And from there, we'll hit on some less frequently used ones as well. So often when we have some data we want to show, the first types of visuals we look to are tables and graphs. But before we get there, I want to spend a moment on the power of simple text. When you have a number or a couple of numbers that you want to communicate. Oftentimes just using the numbers themselves can be a good approach. 
So if you take one or a couple of numbers and you put them in a graph or a table, you run the risk of that being a little misleading. Also, when you do that, the numbers themselves just lose some of their oomph. So if you find you have just one or a couple of important numbers to communicate, think about doing so through the numbers directly. When you have more data you want to show, typically a table or a graph will be the way to go. One thing to be aware of is that people interact differently with these two types of visuals. Let's talk first about tables. When I have a table in front of me, I'm reading. I'm scanning down columns and across rows. I'm trying to mentally hold on to big numbers and little numbers so that I can compare them to other big numbers and little numbers. This is actually a highly taxing cognitive process. And so we can think about some ways to potentially use some visual encoding to make the table easier to interact with. Uh, one common way to do that is through a heat map. So with a heat map, you typically use relative intensity of color to encode relative quantitative value. So for example, a lighter intensity will represent a lower value and a higher uh, intensity, a darker color will represent a larger value or, or sometimes the opposite of that, depending on the context. This can be one way to provide some visual encoding in a table. Uh, another way is to actually embed graphs in your table. For example, if there's one column that's really important and you want to allow your audience to compare uh, values uh, down that column, you could think about integrating a horizontal bar chart, either in place of the numeric values or in addition to them. And this just makes it so you've got an easy visual comparison there in order to be able to facilitate that by comparing the ends of the bars. We'll talk more about bar charts in a bit. I also, I wrote a blog post a long time ago. It's called something like Grable or TAF that has an example of an embedded graph like I've described here. I'll be sure to link to that in show notes. Let's transition though next to talk about some different types of graphs. Let's talk first about when we're using points to plot our data. One common type of graph using points to plot data is a scatter plot. So with scatter plots, you're typically wanting to show two dimensions simultaneously, height versus weight or something like that. And the scatter plot lets you easily see whether and to what extent there's correlation or a relationship between these different dimensions of data. Another way that we sometimes see points used uh, is in dot plots. Dot plots are less common, though I feel like I've seen them more recently. And so with the dot, you're using the position in space to encode the given quantitative value. And so oftentimes you'll do that across different categories to be able to compare. It's almost like plotting the end of a bar chart. And there are different types of dot plots. And actually, rather than me try to describe them here, I'm going to point to another resource, which is the Storytelling with Data Challenge that we did a few months ago that was uh, plots with with dots. And again, I'll link to that in the show notes so you can take a look at a ton of different examples of how we can use points to plot data. Let's shift though to an even more common type of graph, the line graph. So there is one simple rule you need to follow when you are plotting data in a line graph, which is the lines that connect the points need to make sense. 
Now, this happens uh, probably most commonly for continuous data, but there are, there are exceptions for this. If you find yourself needing to plot time, lines are usually a good place to start. Right? This is continuous data doesn't mean it's going to be the place that you necessarily end up. Uh, actually, Alex Wallachek had a good post recently, when can a line be a bar? And he goes through the thought process that he was grappling with because he was needing to plot continuous data. I think it was annual data and was wanting to do it with a bar chart and was trying to figure out whether that's okay. And then it led him to the broader question of when is it okay in general for data that could be plotted in a line to be plotted with a bar? And he goes through a number of different examples and shows them in both bars and lines and, and talks about considerations with each. And I'll make sure to link to that because he had a lot of good examples and thoughts to be considering when making that decision. And some benefits of line graphs. So they are typically cleaner in design, especially if we compare to bars that are heavier, they just take up more ink, which means you have a little more space to play with in some cases. So for example, if you wanted to annotate important things directly on the line graph, you will typically have space to be able to do so. And actually, there was another storytelling with data challenge on annotated line graphs. So I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Well, where you can scan through a ton of different examples and notice which designs work well and what you might emulate in your own work. Line graphs also lend themselves really well to animation. So if you are either wanting to build a video progression for your audience or if you're live in front of them and want to step through something piece by piece, I actually saw an excellent example of an animated line graph recently. It was by Jovan Lekovic, and the title was Who's Got the Remote? And it looked at the proportion of TV viewing uh, across different age groups over time. And it was both beautifully designed um, and then also really nicely paired with the narration of what to be understanding as you watch the animation progress. So again, I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, let's shift though next to bars. There are a lot of different types of bars. And I like to say bar chart is, if I had to pick a single chart, bar chart's my favorite. I use them a ton and it's because they're easy for people to read. So you aren't introducing a learning curve to getting your information across, right? Rather than grapple with how to read the graph, your audience already knows how to do that typically because bars are relatively intuitive for us. And so it means we can jump more quickly to talking about the data. Now, I should probably back up and say bar charts are typically great when you've got categorical data, so data across different categories. They allow us to really quickly see which category is the biggest, which is the smallest. And also, because of the alignment to a consistent baseline, we can easily see the incremental difference between categories. Now, there are a number of types of bar charts. There's your standard vertical bar chart, also known as a column chart. Another common type is the horizontal bar chart. So a good use case here is if you have long category names. This allows you to orient the text in a way that's legible for your audience, which is a nice thing to do. Another common type of bar is the stacked bar chart. So good use case here is if you want to compare totals across different categories, and then within a given category, you want some understanding of the subcomponent pieces. Less useful, though, if you want to start comparing those subcomponent pieces across categories. 
Because as soon as you get past that first data series, you no longer have a consistent baseline to use to compare. It's just a harder comparison for our eyes to make, which is something you want to keep in mind when you are graphing data with a stacked bar chart. And actually, there's an example that we look at sometimes in our workshops that is a stacked bar chart. And the x-axis is time. So we have years going forward in time. And the y-axis represents units sold of a certain product. And the stacks in the bar are by channel. So it's something like retail versus direct marketing versus partner, for example. And each of these components of the stack is changing at each point in time. And so what you find is in looking at this data, it's really hard to see or make sense of what is happening further up the stack because those pieces are stacked on other pieces that are changing over time. And so it actually becomes really difficult to see a really interesting story that's happening in this case. And part of the lesson related to this particular example, and, and I find this to be the case with stacked bars frequently, which is by trying to answer too many questions with a single graph, we actually don't answer any of them as, we, as effectively as we could if we just allowed ourselves to have multiple graphs. And so what the stacked bar in this example allows us to try to compare is first totals over time, right? The tops of those bars as we progress from left to right in the graph over time. And then secondly, within each point in time, the relative distribution across sales channels in this case. Uh, but if we strip those two things out and address them separately, we can actually see what's going on a whole lot easier. In this particular case, we can take the total and plot that as a line graph. And then the connection between the points in the line graph makes it very easy to see when we're up, when we're down. Uh, if there's a target, you can layer on and easily see where we're above or below target or the gap between where we're at and target. Lines also lend themselves well to formatting changes for uh, differentiating between actual data and forecast data. Right? So you can think of big, bold lines to represent your actual data and thin, dotted lines to represent the forecast provide a clear visual distinction. So back to that particular example, we use lines for the total. And then for the relative distribution, we actually turned it into a 100% stacked bar, which is another common type of bar chart. And one benefit you get in the 100% stacked bar over the absolute stacked bar is you get a baseline both on the bottom of the graph as well as along the top of the graph. So you have now two baselines for comparison. So if there's really two primary segments that you want to allow your audience to compare in terms of their composition to total, and you're smart about how you order them, you can put one of those series at the bottom of the graph. The the other one oriented at the very top of the graph, which means now you've got this baseline at the top to be able to compare that second series. And that actually works perfectly in this example because what we were looking for is a shift between two of the channels. And when you orient the data this way, you see that happening. Another type of stacked bar chart uh, typically is the divergent stacked bar chart. 
Uh, I haven't used a lot of these, um, probably because they lend themselves themselves uh, really well, usually to survey data, and I don't do a ton of visualizing survey data. But we do talk about them often in the workshops, and there's typically a very clear preference either for or against them. And, and in a divergent bar, you have bars going in both directions, right? Either leftwards and rightwards, or upwards and downwards, which I recognize is probably pretty confusing as I'm describing this. Steve Wex is my go-to resource when it comes to divergent bar charts. He writes the blog Data Revelations and is one of the authors of the big books of dashboards. And actually, there's one post in particular, Rethinking Divergent Stacked Bars, where he's plotting data on a Likert scale, right? Something from like strongly disagree to strongly agree, and then centers on the, the middle of those. And so you have bars going in both of those directions. So you can see where there are shifts in makeup. And his rethinking is actually arguing towards putting the most extreme values, right? So the strongly disagree and the strongly agree in the center and actually breaking the ordinality of the scale in how you order them, which I can see pros and cons to, but it's a really interesting way to think about things and definitely worth checking out for those who are needing to visualize survey data. And I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. So we've talked about points, we've talked about lines, we've talked about bars. Probably the good news is these are the things, especially lines and bars, that you'll likely find yourself using and being most effective in a business setting. And I think that's actually a great thing, right? We don't need fancy graphs, for the most part, to show our data in an effective way. Now, that said, there will be use cases for other graphs, but they will be rarer. And I will say there is the perfect use case for nearly every graph that exists. The challenge is that if you venture too far from that perfect use case, things can get pretty confusing pretty quickly. Now, this is not a comprehensive list <laughs> that we've talked about when it comes to points, lines, and bars. And actually, there are other graphs that people commonly want to discuss when we are teaching workshops. So I figured I'd touch on some of those as well. Probably the most frequently asked about graph uh, is the pie chart, one that we don't usually discuss directly in terms of recommending for use in a business setting. Uh, so pies are great if you want to show that one segment of the whole is really tiny or that another segment of the whole is really big. The challenge for me is just that they break down pretty quickly if we want to say much more nuanced than that. Because as soon as the segments approach similarity in size, it becomes really difficult to assess the difference and compare them, which just means if that's something that we want to allow for with ease as well, then we want to visualize the data differently. And with pies, it's good to be aware we are comparing areas, which our eyes have limitations. Uh, our brains have limitations, I should say, when it comes to being able to do that accurately. So like intensity, really good in picking up big differences in area, but a harder time quantifying and being able to compare more minor differences in area, which is just something to be cognizant of when you are reaching for pies, right? And be thoughtful in general of what is the comparison that I want to allow my audience to make? Or what do I want to allow them to see in the data? And then choosing a view that's going to help facilitate that. Because different graphs allow us to see 
different things in our data. And any data can be plotted a ton of different ways. So it often takes iterating and looking at the data one way and looking at it another way to figure out what view is going to make sense given the scenario, right? Given your data, given your audience, given what you want them to know. Uh, one twist on the pie chart that is also asked about frequently is the pie chart's sugary cousin, the donut graph. So you can imagine a donut graph, right? It looks like a pie, but the center has been covered up. And now donuts, it's interesting because the common belief used to be that people read pies based on angle. And then continuation of that would be with the donut, since we're covering up the angles, that that would mean we have to mean read donut charts based on arc length, which is about as intuitive as it sounds like it would be. It turns out, though, that's not the case. Uh, some research done a couple of years ago by Robert Kosara and Drew Scow showed that we read pies primarily based on area. So one extension of that is that donuts are, in fact, no worse than pie graphs. We don't use them a ton, or I should say we don't use them at storytelling with data. But does that mean you never should use them? No. Uh, it's being thoughtful about when and how and why you use some of these different visuals. Uh, another common type of graph that is brought up in workshops is the bubble graph. So bubble graphs layer on a ton of different dimensions of data. So let's actually count these. So you have your position in Y space is one dimension. Your position in X space is a second dimension. Uh, the data is encoded by these bubbles that are varying in size, right? So the uh, area of the bubble is a third dimension. We could also apply some categorization. We can color some bubbles differently than the others. That's a fourth dimension. And then if I want to get really fancy and there's a temporal component, you can give yourself a little button to play it and press play. And now things are moving in time. Bubbles are shrinking. They're growing. They're moving in Y and X space. This is a lot going on, both to decipher and understand, as well as to try to explain to an audience. And so I find often when we're trying to layer on so many dimensions, if we can pare back and think about how we can compare two of those or maybe three of those at a time, that it's often going to be easier to talk about and explain and get people to see what you want them to see. Or sometimes we can start with one dimension and then layer on more. That said, there are examples of bubble charts used beautifully. Uh, I always bring up one of my favorite videos when talking about bubble charts, which is one that Hans Rosling did a few years ago with the BBC. Now, Hans Rosling, if you're not familiar with, uh, you could call him one of the founding fathers of data storytelling. He unfortunately passed away last year, founded an organization called Gapminder, which they work to bring awareness to socioeconomic issues throughout the world. And he would use bubble charts and he would use them beautifully. So in the video with the BBC, which I'll make sure to link to in the show notes, they're in this old industrial warehouse sort of space somewhere in the UK. And they got really fancy where they're not projecting the graph on a screen. They're actually projecting it into thin air. 
And it's a bubble graph. And it's an animated bubble graph. So Hans presses play and these bubbles start moving around. They start growing and shrinking and jumping up and down. And he's jumping up and down as he's talking through this. And he's explaining the context of what's driving the differences that you see in the data. And it's like he is orchestrating it. And it is beautiful. Uh, he has a Swedish accent that makes it all the more entertaining. Not everybody could pull that off with the same level of authenticity, right? So the person presenting the data plays an important role in how the data is communicated as well. Uh, so one lesson of that is, you know, one, present data in ways that are going to be authentic to you. And secondly, practice and be prepared for how you will talk through your data with your audience, irrespective of what sort of graph you're using, so that that is an effective scenario. So another example of a bubble graph recently that was nicely done, John Schwabish remade bubble graph where he takes some simple steps to declutter it in a way that makes the information much quicker to get at. And I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Maps are something else that we sometimes get asked about in our workshops. And maps we just we don't show typically as part of the common types of graphs simply because we don't work with a lot of geographical or geospatial data. Maps certainly have an important use case. Uh, I will put out there, though, that just because you have geographical data does not mean a map is going to be the best way to visualize it. I think we often turn to maps when maybe that isn't the best way to show the data. Because with maps, typically the way we will encode data is either through relative intensity of color, right, similar to the heat maps that we talked about earlier, or uh, often relative size of circles, which we talked about a little bit with pie charts. Uh, in both of these cases, both intensity and area, our eyes just aren't very good at making those comparisons. So if you want to show something generally, or there are big hot spots or cold spots or places where the circles are huge versus where they're tiny, that can work well on a map. Or if there's something about the geography itself that is relevant to what you're trying to show, or if it's an area that's unfamiliar to your audience, so having that as a resource, then those can be some cases where you would want to look to a map for sure. But if you're really wanting to allow specific comparison between locations, then you may want to think about moving away from the map and using a visual that's going to make those comparisons more easy. And so when you can identify something you want your audience to compare, you typically want to put those things as physically close together and align them to a common baseline to make that comparison easy. So that said, I've encountered a couple of beautiful maps lately. Uh, one was from Johnny Walker, and it was platypus sightings in Tasmania over, I think it was like the last hundred years. It was just really nicely done, annotated, and a beautiful story. Another recent map I saw that I thought worked really well was called Pasture and Crop. And this was from IronViz finalist Josh Smith. Uh, I'll be sure to link to both of these in the show notes, just examples of really beautiful maps of data. Uh, there was one question that came up actually in a workshop with me earlier this week that I have never faced before. And this was someone raised their hand in response to the question, you know, are there other types of graphs you'd like to talk about? And they said, I'd like to talk about the fish tank. 
Now, I had never heard of this before, so we spent a little bit of time talking about it, but it turns out there is a visualization in Power BI that is a fish tank where there are little fish and they're swimming. And so the size of the fish, relative size of the fish encodes one bit of data. There's also directionality to how they're swimming and I think maybe where they are in the tank. So it's almost similar to the animated bubble graph, I think, in terms that we're layering on a ton of different data. And now I've not figured out if this is an actual data visualization that's meant to be used to communicate data. I think if so, there are some challenges with it, but I think it may be more of a fun tutorial sort of thing. That said, when it comes to less common types of graphs, one really interesting resource to check out is Xenographics. Martin Lambrix manages this, and it's just a collection of less common types of graphs, uh, often bespoke data visualizations that can lend some insight into both new and creative ways to look at something, but just give us some variety as well, which I think is probably less called for on a regular basis in a business setting. But depending on your needs and desires for visualizing data, there, there certainly is room to play and try new things as well. Helps us learn different things about our data uh, and about our tools in ways that can be useful. So I'll link to Xenographics in the show notes as well. So I think that's probably a good place to shift gears. Um, hope you've heard some helpful tips here that you can think about the next time you ask yourself, which graph should I use? Some summary thoughts. Be clear on what you want your audience to see. Allow yourself time to iterate. Different views of the data will allow you to see different things, as we've talked about. And often it takes looking at the data a few ways to figure out which will work best for your audience. When in doubt, get feedback. And finally, you don't usually need fancy graphs to communicate data well. There can be great benefit to using familiar lines and bars, which frees you up from having to talk about how to read the data so that you and your audience can focus more quickly on what you can do based on the data. Next, let's shift to listener Q&A. Rachel writes, Hi, Cole. I'm a huge fan of your book and podcast. I appreciate your explanations and thoughtfulness. Although I've been analyzing data for over a decade, I never had any formal training. I have a master's in social work, circuitous path to data. I find your material accordingly so helpful to codify and systematize what I've learned organically and introduce me to new areas and thinkers. I've been struggling with optimal ways to convey multiple selection data results. For example, I often have survey data where respondents can make multiple selections. I've been using bar charts that don't sum to 100% since each bar is on a scale of 0 to 100. See below for a screenshot. Any ideas? And Rachel shares a graph that is plotting top customer objections. It just has four categories of data. The first is still researching, then not interested, followed by need to get approval, and then option and color not available today. It's a horizontal bar chart, and the way I describe those categories is in descending order, with the biggest on top, so 48% say they're still researching or considering, and then going down from there. And Rachel continues, this exacerbates a general challenge I have with potentially overusing bar and line charts. From a visualization perspective, they're often the best way to present my data to a business audience. For example, explaining a spider chart would distract from telling the story. However, my audiences yawn that the stories I tell aren't varied enough. I interpret their boredom to actually mean I think I'm overpaying for analytics if all I'm getting are these simple charts I could do myself in Excel. 
Great to hear from you, Rachel, and happy that you find our work useful. So multiple selections are hard to visualize for the reasons you describe. Uh, I think one quick iteration on what you've shared could be if you show the additional part of each bar continuing out to 100%. And you could do this either in a much less saturated version of the same hue or just as the outline. And I think this would help indicate that each of these categories is out of 100% rather than people misunderstanding and thinking that they add up to 100%. Now, if you wanted to get more creative, you might be able to do something like 48 out of every 100 people and so forth. Uh, one way to do this would be using multiple square area graphs, for example. In the April 2018 Storytelling with Data Challenge has a lot of example square area graphs that you could browse through, uh, which I'll link in the show notes, though this might be overkill for such simple data. To the broader point of getting people who might be bored or possibly feeling like they aren't getting value out of simple charts, I have a couple of thoughts. So for me, it isn't the graph that makes the data interesting. It's the story that you tell with it. And when you clearly answer your audience's question, so what, it shifts the conversation. So they aren't necessarily even paying attention to the graphical form itself, but rather what the data shows and what they should do about it. For example, in the data you shared, rather than simply show the bar chart, I might be inclined to highlight the largest bar and add a title or a subtitle that says something like, 48% of respondents are still researching. How can we help them get the information they need so they're ready to purchase? And I'm totally making up the details for purposes of illustration, but you can see how the words we use around the data can actually direct our audience to have a discussion, right? Where now no longer are they reflecting on the simplicity of the bar chart. They're talking about how do they act on the data that is being shown. And part of the interesting thing in this case is even if we focus on the wrong thing when we do something like this, it starts the right sort of conversation about the data, what we can learn from it, how we should act upon it rather than the graph. As another point of illustration, I've been involved in some research with the Visual Thinking Lab at Northwestern where we're trying to quantify the negative impact of clutter in communicating with graphs. And the data indicates there's benefit to decluttering. And we see this across all the dimensions tested, aesthetic, clarity, professionalism, trustworthiness. But you get even more benefit across all of these dimensions when you also focus and highlight a specific takeaway. So this reinforces the idea that I just mentioned, that we should not only simplify and declutter, but also be clear about where we want our audience to look and what we want them to know when we use data for explanatory purposes. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. The results of this study are being finalized right now, and um, they're soon to be published. I'll be, sure to, I'll be sure to share them more broadly once they're available. Allison writes, I'm running our leadership data visualization team for supply chain. We're about a year into our journey and still have so much growing to do. We've been asked to do a software comparison between Tableau and Power BI. I'm a bit biased because our team has been using Tableau and we have not used Power BI as much. At the same time, our corporate IT funds Power BI. We're having a difficult time influencing them to adopt Tableau. Do you have any materials, either of your own or from others, that you could share to help us with this process? 
Thanks for your question, Allison. And this is not the first time that this one's been posed to me. I don't do much with dashboards, so I'm definitely not in the right position to answer. But I figured people in my network probably have some thoughts on this. And so I tweeted a few days ago to try to identify and gather some resources. I'll link to the conversation in the show notes. There are a couple dozen responses with people sharing their thoughts, as well as links to articles and blog posts comparing the two. Uh, There was a recent Gartner article in particular that was referenced several times. Some common themes I saw in browsing over the comments um, you know, one was the price difference, also feature differences, though it sounds like that's narrowed a lot over time. So it's probably safest to stick to the more recent reviews uh, as you're looking through those. Also, just be aware that people who work in these tools generally have a pretty strong preference one way or the other. Think similar to what you're observing between your team and corporate IT. So just be cognizant of the potential bias in, in what you read. Still, I hope there will prove to be some helpful resources there for you and others who may be interested in the Tableau Power BI comparison. Alan writes, I had a client that complained of not having visualized data to make decisions while also rejecting visuals that were simplified and focused towards telling a story. They preferred visuals that appeared to be minimally modified Excel charts with the purpose being explained in person rather than clear in the slide. This was partly due to fear of the visual being seen out of context and misunderstood. How would you approach raising the level of value provided in visuals within the constraints of an audience that is distrusting of visuals that appear produced and fear misuse out of context? As a side note, your book is required textbook for my visualization class in my master's program at Virginia Tech. Hi, Alan. Awesome to hear that storytelling with data is part of your master's program. This is a great question and a challenging one. Anytime you're faced with resistance from your audience, take time to try to better understand it. And so it's like you've already done this to a good extent already. You've identified their fear of visuals being seen as out of context and misunderstood. One interesting thing for me is that this is actually probably more likely with the minimally modified Excel charts you describe compared to the ones that you want to create. I think one approach that can sometimes work to help ease a transition like this and get your clients to see the benefit without feeling like you're going against what they want is start by giving them what they want, right? This might be those minimally modified Excel graphs, then transition from there into your preferred view. This could be as simple as starting with the default Excel graph, then transitioning to a view where one segment or data point is highlighted, then adding words around it to describe the main takeaway. By starting with the familiar, you've not taken anything away. Rather, you're leading them from where they want to start to where you want them to go. And I imagine you'll get interesting additional insight from them along the way as a result of this. And over time, you can hopefully be able to build their trust that you're focusing on the right things and then eventually be able to start with your preferred view. Stepping back, I think the more you can do to uncover what's driving your clients and audiences' needs, the more thoughtful and nuanced you can be in how you meet them. Big thanks to everyone who submitted questions. If you have a question, you can email it to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks very much for tuning in. Before we wrap, a couple of updates. On May 30th, this is 2019, we'll be hosting our very first live stream event, Learning Through Critique. It's free to watch, but you must register, which you can do at storytellingwithdata.com slash livestream. 
I'll be traveling to Europe in a few short weeks. There's still space left in one-day workshops in Dublin, Copenhagen, and Zurich. Details and registration can be found at storytellingwithdata.com slash public hyphen workshops. In episode 16 of the podcast, we announced we were hiring. We've been thrilled by the positive response. Huge thanks to everyone who expressed interest and took the time to apply and talk with us. I'm very happy to announce that we've made two new hires to the Storytelling with Data team, who you'll get to know through the blog and other projects soon. The recap post from May's Storytelling with Data Challenge on visualing artisanal data is up. I love the insight we got into people's lives and interests through this one. Thanks to all who created and shared their work. Next challenge will launch on June 1st. As a bit of a sneak peek, you won't need to gather any data for this one. You'll find info on the challenge at storytellingwithdata.com slash swdchallenge. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with a friend. And with that, be sure to follow at Story with Data on Twitter and Instagram. Also check out all the great resources on the blog at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks for listening.